Welcome to Song and Plants. My name is Carmen Porter. In this episode, I was joined by the NC Tomato Man, Craig LaHoulier. His involvement with the Seed Savers Exchange and the preservation of heirloom varieties and their histories is exciting and fascinating. He has developed cultivars, educated gardeners, and authored two fabulous books. His knowledge and experience in the realm of tomato genetics is a wonder-filled adventure that he graciously shares. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to Song and Plants. Would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Craig LaHoulier. Some people know me as NC Tomato Man for reasons I won't go into now, but it's probably accurate. (laughs) Husband of 42 years to the most wonderful woman in the world, father of two great daughters. I cook, I listen to music, and yes, I do grow tomatoes. (laughs) (laughs) wonderful how did you come to becoming the tomato man oh gosh the story probably starts way way back when i was young two three four years old i was very very fortunate to have a grandfather who had a big garden and he would walk me through it when i was no taller than very short tomato plants and then my dad would also take me to local parks and teach me the names of the flowers And I think when I was six, he dug a garden in the backyard and we gardened together. So that, you know, to use an overused pun in a way, that planted the seed of gardening in me. And it took decades to germinate through the school years and dating and all that. But then when I got married to my wife, when I was in grad school, we met. And our first thing we did that summer was have our first garden in 1981. And I've been gardening since. I think the focus on tomatoes just came from my love of growing lots of different things and there are so many morphological and flavor differences in tomatoes it's probably the ideal crop if you want to grow several thousand different examples of the same thing and loving to cook and loving to eat and loving stories and being able to save seeds and share them with people i think tomatoes were the crop that chose me because of all the wonderful varieties that people have sent me over the years and the impact that I've been able to have in terms of the breeding projects I run and the book I wrote and the number of people I get to associate with. So I'm I'm just a lucky guy. What can I say? Well, there's a lot there. Um... (laughs) Just a little. (laughs) You ask me short questions and you're going to get several things you can uh, pick or peck at. So let's go. Let's dig. What are some of the stories that you've come across the historically significant cultivars that you've grown? Sure. Well, well, the most fortunate one of all was when a fellow named John Green, who lived in Surveyville, Tennessee, decided to send me, of all people, seeds of what was at the time an unnamed tomato. The letter that accompanied it said, here is a purple tomato that friends gave me, and it was in their family. It was given to them by the Cherokee tribe over a hundred years ago. So here it is, me, this letter, these seeds, realizing that me and Mr. Green may be the only two people in the country that have this. It's just a possible assumption. So I grew it, was amazed at that color because in 1990, the so-called black or purple or brown tomatoes were unknown at the time. It was the first one I had seen. Since then, I had talked to him a few times on the phone. He's passed on now, but it turns out He received the seeds at a garden event from a woman named Jean Greenlee who lived nearby in Rutledge, Tennessee. Jean got them from her grandfather, and her grandfather is the one that received them from the Cherokee tribe in the late 1800s. One of the things about my wife and I is when we have something great, we can't wait to share it. So gardeners are particularly wonderful about that. We don't hoard our discoveries. We drop them on people's porches or mail it to them or whatever. So I wanted to find a way to get this tomato out and about. I named it Cherokee Purple based on the information in the letter. And I sent it to my friend, Jeff McCormick, who ran the wonderful seed company, Southern Exposure Seed Exchange in Virginia at the time. Jeff grew it and he 
called me back the next year and he said, I love the flavor. The color is really ugly. It looks like what happens if you bump your leg into a table. I don't think people are going to accept it because of that ugly color. However, I'll take a chance and order it in very limited quantities with a strong caveat, only for the adventurous in my 1993 catalog. And here we are, what is it, 2023? That's 30 years later, and almost every farmer's market probably has somebody who's selling Cherokee Purple. So that probably was the indication that I was meant to become involved in this because somehow that tomato found me and I found a way to get it out there. And, you know, there's so many others. Lillian's Yellow Heirloom, another one of my favorites. A fellow named Robert Richardson in New York sent me some seeds once with a letter saying, I received this from Lillian Bruce, an elderly lady in Tennessee. She received it because her sons went to local state fairs and when they found an interesting tomato or some other vegetable or fruit growing, they'd always bring Lillian back an example. And so I got to grow that and name it and send that out to seed companies. And a Russian, in 1988, a woman named Brenda Hellenius sent me seeds of this tomato that she received from her grandfather, Kenneth Wilcox, who received it from a Russian immigrant in the 1930s. So just all of these stories. And as I'm sitting here speaking to you in my room, I have a box that has the letters of everyone since 1986, which is when I started all of this. Everyone who sent me seeds through the years. And I need to figure out what to do with that someday because I can't just let it disappear when I disappear. So that's one of my remaining projects is how do I make sure that all of the valuable historical information that I had is out there and available for people to look at. Just a little technicality. So when you're talking about these seeds that have been grown and preserved within right. families, yeah, when you save tomato seeds, mm-hmm. they're self-pollinating. Right. So... What's the difference between a heirloom and a hybrid? Exactly. A big difference in that hybrids can never be heirlooms because when you grow hybrids, and there are some hybrids I love, such as Sun Gold, one of my very favorite tomatoes, but that tomato was created in a greenhouse by a company deciding that pollen from variety A, which is a secret, when applied to flowers from variety B, which is a secret, and that's one of the things about hybrids, is nobody except the seed companies know what the parent is. That's one of the financial advantages to the companies that sell them or the company that creates them. The tomato that farms after that pollen is put on the flower, the tomato that farms contains the hybrid seed that ends up in the packet. So that's why they're a little more expensive. You could grow sun gold and love it, but if you save seeds from it, you'll get tomatoes, but you'll get all kinds of tomatoes that vary from things that look like the father, things that look like the mother, and other things in between. So you have to be really careful if you share seeds that are saved from hybrid varieties because literally no one knows what they will be the year that you grow them. And you could work on them for eight or 10 generations to stabilize something new. But for the purposes of this discussion, A hybrid is a created variety that you grow the seed and you enjoy the tomato. And if you want to grow it from saved seeds, good luck. Don't put it in seed libraries because it's not going to be reliably reproducible. Whereas an heirloom has been grown long enough to have developed stable genomes. As long as the bees don't visit the flowers from the tomato you're saving seeds from, it will breed true. So there is an analogous term to heirloom or I would say the opposite of hybrid is open pollinated. Open pollinated means genetically stable. You can save seeds and grow them and they'll be the same. So all heirlooms are open pollinated, but not all open pollinated are heirlooms because some of them are still being created today. And they're just, they don't have that aura of mystique of age and longevity, an heirloom watch, an heirloom clock. Our dwarf tomato project varieties have all been created in the last 10 years. They're stable, they're open pollinated, but in no way are they heirlooms yet because they haven't stood the test of time. If my great grandkids grow dwarf Kelly green in 50 or 60 years, yeah, I think we can call it an heirloom by then, but we just don't know at this point. So, you know, we live in this interesting time where because of the seed savers exchange forming in 1975 and leading to the 
preservation of all these wonderful non-hybrid varieties, we gardeners now have the biggest variety of tomatoes that anyone in history has had to put in their garden, which makes deciding what to grow an extremely interesting and daunting task any, any given year, given mm -hmm. the thousands and thousands of tomatoes that are available for us to choose from. One little question. What is yeah. the difference between a hybrid and cross-pollinated? So a hybrid occurs when a tomato is cross-pollinated. So if I, like I did a few years ago, one of the things I wanted to find out is what happens if I take two of my favorite heirlooms and create a hybrid between them? So cross-pollination occurred when I took pollen from Cherokee purple and applied it to a flower on Lillian's yellow heirloom. That was the process of cross-pollination. A bee can do that. Mm -hmm. If a bee would have flown to pollen up to a Cherokee purple flower and then applied it to a flower on Lillian's yellow and then I saved seed from it and didn't know the bee visited it, it would not come out looking like Lillian's yellow and therefore I would know that it, it had been cross-pollinated. When I'm doing crosses, I like to be the bee mm -hmm. so that I know what I'm getting. And it just turns out the hybrid between Lillian's yellow heirloom and Cherokee purple is one of the best tomatoes I've ever eaten in my life. Oh, wow. um, it's not available. It is only available in the gardens of the person who decides to do that particular cross. I'm now playing with saved seeds from that hybrid to see if I can develop new and interesting varieties that have that excellent characteristic that the hybrid did. So this is where the chemist or the scientist in me ends up getting really excited in the garden. Mm -hmm. And I look at my garden as a laboratory where I can do experiments. And it could be growing a new variety someone sent me or growing a hybrid I created or delving into the mystery of what happens if I grow out the results of a hybrid I created. But it's as simple as that. Cross-pollination is the act that creates the hybrid variety, either intentionally by you or me or non-intentionally by a visiting bee. Mm -hmm. So if it's open-pollinated, then is it often cross-pollinated if it's done by bees? So tomatoes are self-pollinated the vast majority of the time, meaning they have this mechanism. Nature provided this remarkable mechanism of pollination where as the flower opens, the pollen releases from the anthers and brushes against the pistil and pollination happens. And if that happens when it should, even if a bee visits that flower, it shouldn't cause any difference because the deed's already done. What can happen, especially in the middle of the summertime when bees are really prevalent in the garden, is the bees can often sneak in with pollen from another variety and get it onto the pistil of the flower before the anthers of that flower have had a chance to do the self-pollination. So tomatoes, I would say, are self-pollinating 70, 80% of the time in the middle of summer. What I've found, because I grow lots of varieties together and I'm an avid seed saver, is if I focus on saving seeds from the very lowest cluster of fruit, the first fruit to set, then I'm finding 99 plus percent or more uncrossed seed because the bees are not that busy when it's cool in the spring. They haven't paid much attention to the tomato plants because those flowers are right, way down low in the plant. If you want to prevent cross-pollination later in the season, I would advise bagging the blossoms, meaning before the flowers open, you can fashion a fabric sack to tie around that flower cluster, use a twisty tie to secure it, let the flowers open, let the little tomatoes form in there, and then remove that twisty tie in the bag and mark that cluster because that means every tomato in that cluster will be guaranteed to be the same as the parent variety. You know, a lot of people talk about using separation distances, but I'm in my garden a lot and I know that a bee can get from one end of my yard to the other very, very fast. So even if you have tomato plants separated by 100 feet, there's nothing that will stop that bee from visiting one plant grabbing pollen taking two seconds to fly that 100 feet and apply it to another plant. So the two methods I use for purity are using the early fruit for seed saving or bagging the blossoms. Mm -hmm. You mentioned also with the hybrid that you created, mm. then saving the seeds from it, although they won't be true to the hybrid, you right. plant them out. And 
you said stabilizing the genetics. How many generations does it take to stabilize genetics in a new variety? Right. Well, this really is how our dwarf tomato project was devised and how we ran it in that Katrina, my Australian friend who did a lot of our early crosses, would create a hybrid and send it to me and I would grow that hybrid and save lots of seed from it. And then I would distribute those seeds amongst our volunteers. And it's really fun because it's like Mendel sitting in his pea patch. It follows Mendelian genetics in that dwarf tomatoes is a recessive trait. Tall growing or indeterminate tomatoes are the dominant trait. So when you save seed from the hybrid, you will see a three to one ratio of indeterminate to dwarf. So you can immediately call out three quarters of your seedlings. That trait shows quite quickly. Then when you grow out as many dwarfs as you can fit, you find that you see great variation in fruit size, fruit color, and flavor. And that's where the fun begins. You start, you pick one that you love, you save seeds from that, and you grow some, and you'll still see variation, but it will start to narrow like a funnel. So basically, if you're creating a tomato that has lots of recessive traits, let's say a dwarf tomato with potato leaf foliage and yellow fruit, it will stabilize much more quickly, probably within six generations, maybe eight. If you're trying to stabilize a variety that shows lots of the dominant traits, like a regular leaf dwarf with red fruit, sometimes it will take 10 generations to get rid of the unwanted visitors that show up, other, other possibilities. So for that hybrid I created between Lillian's Yellow and Cherokee Purple, when I plant seeds of the hybrid that I created, I will see a three to one mixture of regular leaf like Cherokee Purple and potato leaf like Lillian's Yellow. And then I can decide, I want to create a new tomato here. Do I want it to be regular or potato? That's what leads you to deciding what you want to grow but grow lots of them because you'll see tomatoes that look like Cherokee purple, tomatoes that look like Lillian's yellow, and lots of color combinations in between. But I am looking on six to eight year projects if I do want to create a new stable tomato from that cross that I made. Hmm. And you mentioned, so there's a whole variation of color that comes in the genetics, even though the two parents are just two particular colors. Yeah. and. This is great. You you are like making me so excited about this conversation. I'm, I'm going to try to really be as layman about it as, a, as I can because genetics can get really confusing for people. So, But it's important to say here, this will keep it simple, the way a tomato looks is a combination of different traits that could be dominant or recessive. So think a common tomato like Celebrity or Big Boy or Better Boy. It's your supermarket tomato, your red tomato. It's red because it has red flesh, which is dominant, and yellow skin, which is dominant. A tomato like Brandywine has that same colored flesh, but it's got a recessive trait for the skin color, which is clear. So the only two differences between a red tomato and a pink tomato is the skin color. Lillian's yellow has clear skin and yellow flesh, and Cherokee purple has clear skin and deep crimson flesh. It's got another recessive trait that gives it that really dark, dark color. So you can get combinations of skin colors and flesh colors that combine with each other. Last year, I ended up with a tomato from that cross in the second generation that was pink but had yellow marbling in it in and out that was like neither of the parent. So the genes combined in a new way and in our dwarf project, we have many, many color surprises. We would cross, just for an example, a yellow with an orange, and our hybrid is yellow-red bicolor. And then all of a sudden, you're working with advanced generations, and pinks are popping out, and reds. So you never quite know. And gardeners who love the unknown and love ambiguity and can handle not knowing exactly what you're going to get, Breeding projects are a lot of fun to participate in because of that sense of mystery. And you can't see flavor. So that complicates it even further. A tomato may look wonderful and you think, oh, I've nailed it. You taste it and it's bland as can be. And you're like, <laughs> well, the flavor genes did not make it into that particular selection. So we're just going to go back to the drawing board and, and try again. 
then you add the complexity that you and I, for example, would eat the same tomato and probably like it differently because we'd have different things we enjoy, or we pick up acidity or sweetness at different levels. So as a scientist, I could be befuddled by the number of variables in gardening, but I just find it thrilling to tell you the truth because it means no no two gardens are ever going to be the same absolutely and even growing conditions can affect the flavor and how that particular variety grows you know it does and one of the things i think that's really frustrating gardeners who are kind of new at this is they're looking for some sure things often because they're just starting out and they want some wins but just the fact that certain varieties grown in different climates, different seasons, using different cultivation techniques, different fertilizers, you can get great variation in results. And I think these days where the conditions in a given area are starting to really change, an example of that is I gardened in Raleigh for 28 years. And in 1992, when we moved in, we had two to four days a summer of temperatures at 90 or above. When we moved out in 2019, that summer we had 70 days of 90 and above. That heat is going to change how the diseases affect and which diseases affect your plant, which critters are going to affect your plant because the populations of bugs and insects and worms are going to change. The fruit set, some of the varieties that gave me 30 pounds of plant in Pennsylvania were giving me 10 pounds of plant in Raleigh because all the flowers dropped off. They couldn't take that 90 degree heat. Mm -hmm. So really a handheld recorder or a good garden log is a gardener's best friend. So you can take note of all these observations and then make changes the next year, new varieties, a different way of growing to see if you can keep one step ahead and keep having successful gardens. And I suppose doing things like sharing seeds and growing heirlooms for multiple seasons, you can start to have them acclimatized to your growing conditions. This is a fascinating topic because what I've found is it isn't so much the genetics of the seed is changing so much that gardeners are starting to select for certain traits that may be slightly variable in a given variety. So, for example, let's say that I share seeds of brandywine with someone in a very different climate and they grow 10 plants and one of them over the course of a year or two does quite differently. What they've probably done is identify something in that array of brandywine seeds that has a slightly different set of genes. You would have to actually do a lot of genetic fingerprinting on all of the seeds that we're getting from different companies to see how pure they are. One interesting example of this is I was working with a group from MIT and they wanted to look at the genetic condition of certain varieties that have been around a while. And one of the ones they chose was Cherokee Purple. And they obtained seeds from a lot of different sources, different companies, etc. They were looking at other varieties too, one named Black Crim that looks a lot like Cherokee Purple, but has a very different country source and different flavor. And what they found was about one third of the companies was not selling Cherokee Purple. Even though it was called Cherokee Purple, they were selling Black Crim. Another third of the companies were selling neither because the Cherokee Purple had become so crossed up through poor seed saving over the years or starting with a bad seed source. I got into heirlooms in the mid 80s and it was kind of the beginning of the heyday of heirloom tomatoes. And one of the wonderful things that's happened since is so many little seed companies have popped up, but also the people who are trying to just take advantage and make a little money off it that show up on eBay or Amazon. What's happened is a lot of our heirlooms have become I guess for want of a better word, polluted genetically. Mm -hmm. So if one purchases Cherokee purple seed that everybody's raved about and it does poorly in their garden, they can't assume that it was their garden or the way they grew it. They might assume that they just got a bad sample of seed and they'd want to maybe go to Garden Watchdog and look at the reviews of various seed companies to see if people have written in reviews saying that Maybe the quality of the seed isn't up to snuff, either germination-wise or purity-wise. 
So it has been a really interesting struggle to see over the last 10 or 15 years, see catalogs or listings online where histories have been altered or manipulated. The wrong variety, you can look at the picture and you know that it's the right description, but it's the wrong variety. Or mm -hmm. it's the right picture and the right variety, but the wrong history. Gardening is like life. 95% of the people are going to be good actors and do their best. And there's always going to be 5% who try to take advantage and are not honest or truthful or the quality is not what it should be. I would never divulge who or what or what I've found just to say beware and do your research. The internet, as you know, and everybody knows, has a lot of information. Not all of it's correct. <laughs> and uh, one just has to be careful. Use multiple sources. But that's just the way things are, right? Change is inevitable. Nothing is perfect. And gardening is just another one of those journeys where you learn a lot about life along the way. Mm -hmm. And even sometimes accidents happen. Like you were saying, exactly. a bee can get in there. And yeah. <laughs> I bought hybrid sun gold seed from Johnny's once. And I grew, it, it was a red cherry tomato. And so what <laughs> happened is, and Johnny's does not produce the hybrids. Hybrids are produced by different companies, mostly in Europe and Asia. And it could be that a bad batch, a bad hybridization occurred and some of one of the parents ended up in the envelope. So it's best to assume no harm. Victory Seeds, which is one of my very favorite seed companies, they're working with us on a lot of the dwarf projects. And we're an amateur dwarf breeding project. There's no way that we can grow thousands of each out and do culling for five years to guarantee that each one of these things is going to be genetically stable. So customers will occasionally pop up saying, you know, I grew Firebird Sweet, it's supposed to be pink with gold stripes. Well, it's yellow with orange stripes. Mike will usually send me the email and I'll say, I bet you it was delicious. Sorry about that. You just got a little <laughs> bit of Firebird Sweets instability still showing itself, but save seeds, grow it. You may have something great that you can work on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. One thing about color that I'm a little bit curious mm -hmm. about is how does the black fit in? Black is a term that some seed savers, gardeners, or companies decided to start using for tomatoes that have the dusky coloring that occurs when some chlorophyll is retained after ripening. So if you cut open Cherokee purple or Cherokee chocolate, it has a deep crimson red interior, but around the seeds, the seed gel is greenish. And if you look at the shoulder of the plant, that green retention of chlorophyll gives the plant almost black shoulders. But what it has done, it has created a ton of confusion because tomato colors are confused anyway. Even if you look in the Seed Savers catalog, there are pink tomatoes in the red section, there are red tomatoes in the pink section. If I look at various seed catalogs, there are pink tomatoes in the purple section. And I think the term black was intended to be used for tomatoes that are brown and purple. But it has been confused, and none of the color terminology is actually being applied in a 100% standard fashion right now, and there's a lot of confusion around it. And there's also the indigo. Now, so that, all of those tomatoes that have the truly black-blue shoulders, particularly when they're exposed to sunlight, are offspring of an experimental variety that was collected somewhere elsewhere, maybe South America, that had a mutation or a gene that showed that black-blue coloring. That's been used now to breed tomatoes such as Indigo Rose, Black Beauty, and any number of them. So that is the presence of extra anthocyanin in the plant. So the tomatoes with the black shoulders are totally different and completely unrelated to the purple-browns, which are black tomatoes which do not have anthocyanin. Okay. To further add to the confusion, though, <laughs> some of those purple and brown tomatoes had been bred with anthocyanin varieties. So now we have black, black tomatoes. <laughs> I have yet to taste a dark purple, black purple shoulder tomato that I actually think is utterly delicious. And I almost wonder if that anthocyanin pigment is leading to a little bit of bitterness in the flesh of the tomato. I actually have tried several of those varieties and I've yet to find one that I truly love. Have you tried indigo kumquat? Not yet. 
it's a hybrid, but it's a cherry tomato. Yep. It's the yellow, sort of yellow orange yeah. with the black or the indigo. And it actually has a lot of sweetness. It's productive. Good. And it also is quite cold hardy because it's usually the Good. last one to die for me. But cool. it's harder to source. I haven't yeah. found it. I had it a couple of years and then I wasn't able to source it again. But I tried to plant out seed to see what would happen. Yeah. And I planted yeah. out, of course, it being a hybrid, I didn't expect yeah. it to be true. But I didn't get a single yellow. Yeah. Yellow is a recessive trait. So what that indicates to me is you're going to have to grow up maybe 50 of them to find a couple. So I've grown about 5,000 different types of tomatoes. And now, of course, you give me my 5,001st to look for <laughs> and to try someday. We actually have one called Mignonette that's coming out of our dwarf project that my friend in Washington worked on. And we're sending that up to Victory so that may be one that tastes mm. good and is yellow and is a dwarf. So if you would like mm. to try that, I will send you some seeds. Oh, that would be fantastic. <laughs> good. So where do we go from here, Con? <laughs> <laughs> You've taken me down in the rat hole of tomato genetics and, and all that. So, uh, But it, it's such great fun. I can't wait to find out where you're going to bring me next. Well, how about where do tomatoes come from? Where are they native to? And sure. how did they end up with such diversity of color and size? Mm. Yeah, well, tomatoes seem to originate in coastal South America, probably as little pea-sized weedy things. They made their way up into Central America. Unfortunately, the way that tomatoes got into Europe were through the Aztec conquests, so it was the 1580s. And by that time, there was a presumption that there was some essentially breeding work being done where they were being grown in South and Central America. And it's not surprising because a tomato's genome contains lots of different recessive traits that can show, that can give you those different looking plants, different colored ones, larger fruit. But since they were growing there for probably thousands of years, it's very likely that the tomatoes that made their way to Europe in the 1580s had, you know, the Pomodoro or the Golden Apple, certainly cherry-sized ones, probably plum-sized ones, yellows and reds, probably big lumpy guys. And how a lot of the different colored tomatoes, it's a rare way they form, but every now and then a tomato will just throw a mutation. And I'm convinced the way that Cherokee chocolate came into existence out of Cherokee purple was I was lucky enough to grow a seed where the skin color mutated from clear to yellow because everything then on has been chocolate colored from that plant that I discovered. Hmm. So the tomato had a, a nice time of it, helping people cook wonderful things in Europe from the 1580s. And then they made their way into America probably in the 1700s here and there sprinkled around, but not in a widespread fashion as a culinary plant until the mid 1800s, probably 1840, 1850. Whether it was because they were part of the nightshade family, otherwise known as the deadly nightshade family, but the tomatoes considered poisonous and the variety available to grow in the US was extremely limited. I have a catalog from 1840 from the Brexit Company of Boston that shows one listing and no description. It just says tomato. We actually have to look at European art in the 1600s, those still life paintings to understand that the tomatoes that they favored were often what we call the ugly heirlooms now, multi-lobed, flat, creased, really, really ugly. So the very first tomatoes that ended up in American gardens when people decided they were good to eat maybe four or five different varieties, all lumpy, all ugly, lots of waste, a yellow one, a red one. There was a pink called Fiji that showed up in the 1860s. And it really wasn't until Alexander Livingston decided that he could create new varieties by doing what you just did with your kumquat variety. He would take a variety that a seedsman was selling that wasn't very good and plant a thousand plants and find one or two that were obviously far superior. That became the basis for tomato improvement in the US from about 1870 onward. And really, we're still kind of riding the wave of that, the incredible proliferation of tomato varieties between roughly 
1870 and where we are today. Now that's not that many years. So horticulturally in our country, the tomato has been undergoing improvement for, you know, 150, 200 years, something like that. I don't know why people never thought it was delicious in this country, but that fear, fear of other, fear of poisoning, fear of the bad smelling foliage, you know, people put off gratification for quite a while. Hmm. And so that selection process that you're talking about, he would just choose that one particular plant and then yes. bag the flowers, like you were saying? He would choose that one particular plant and just save the fruit from that plant. I'm not sure back in 1870, he thought about bagged flowers. See, it, and it's interesting because if you look at old seed catalogs, they didn't understand plant genetics very well because you, you'd see descriptions for melons or tomatoes saying, you know, these seeds cost extra because we save seeds of the most perfectly formed fruit on the plant to produce a better variety. And of course, the variety would be no better because all of the fruit, everything in a plant is going to be the same genetically. So Livingston in 1870 is the one who broke the code. He's the one that realized you can't do single fruit selection and get improvement. You have to do single plant selection and plant breeding pretty much from his day on is around finding that superior plant as a starting point to improve your crop. They weren't really doing a lot of intentional crossing back then. The first hybrid tomato that was sold was actually Burpee's Big Boy in 1949. And that act revolutionized tomato breeding and seed companies really focused on selling just hybrids between the early 1950s and when the seed savers came on board in the mid-1970s. So all of these heirloom varieties, open pollinated varieties, were going extinct at a rapid rate because of the rush to hybrids. And it was the seed saver exchange that actually stopped that. And now hybrids and open pollinated varieties can peacefully coexist with each other. And both of them are available through different catalogs. So it's been a short journey for the tomato in this country, but a, but an awful lot of breakthroughs and progress and excitement in just a short amount of time. Can you tell me a little bit more about the Seed Savers Exchange? Yeah, probably my favorite organization, one that I have supported so strongly since the mid 80s. So in 1975, there was a couple, Kent Wheely and his wife, Diane, and they were living, I believe, in Iowa at the time. And Kent was quite a visionary thinker. Diane, his wife, had grandparents that came over from Germany, and they had given Diane three types of seeds, a morning glory and a tomato and a bean, and they became centerpieces in the Wheelie's gardens. And Kent had to think about, what if they wouldn't have given us these seeds and we didn't grow them out and start sharing them with our friends? They'd probably go extinct. And then he thought about rural America and how many seed sellers or the mice get in and eat the seeds or the farmers die and never pass those on to other people. So the Seed Savers Exchange simply started as a mechanism to allow gardeners who are maintaining wonderful open pollinated varieties to provide their address so that people could request seed from them, make a list of what they have and gardeners who are part of this exchange can then share seeds as a step to helping ensure that those varieties don't go extinct. So it started in 1975 as a newsletter with seven people involved. And now it sends out an annual yearbook that's about an inch thick. I call it the phone book of seed varieties. That's where you can, you can get 10,000 different types of tomato seeds or several thousand types of bean seeds. In a way, it's their cultural, horticultural heritage of, of botanical history. And I think maybe about 20 years ago to help finance all of the work that it does in terms of maintaining the database and maintaining a seed bank. Because if you listed varieties in their yearbook, the seed savers would request a sample so that they could maintain it in cold storage there. A lot of their samples made their way to the Svalsvad vault in Norway and are being kept there. So they formed a catalog selling samples of some of their most wonderful varieties as well. So 
Today, the SeedSaver is the organization that runs the sharing database, as well as a company that you can get really high quality open pollinated varieties as well. And it has also gone really big into gardening education and culture and understanding seed names. I've been out to Decor, Iowa to give talks a few times, and every talk I give, I like to give credit to them because if it wasn't for them forming in 1975, you and I would probably be growing hybrid tomatoes in our garden and little else. So it was a game changer. And how did the seed companies convince people to start growing hybrids? I understand there's the term hybrid vigor and that you get slightly more uniformity or predictability potentially, but I haven't found that to be particularly the case. Neither have I. So to me, there are certain crops that may show a little bit of hybrid vigor, but they tend to be imperfect flowered crops where you have male and female on different parts of the plant, such as maybe squash or things mm-hmm. like that. But I've never seen hybrid vigor in tomatoes, peppers, or eggplant. In fact, I've seen often more vigor in my open pollinated varieties than in the hybrids that I've grown. So there's a few things. I think companies started producing hybrids because it was a way to work some disease tolerance and resistance into some of the crops to get people who were having trouble growing certain crops in various areas. So the first ones for tomatoes were to insert by breeding, inserting some genes for verticillium wilt tolerance or resistance and fusarium wilt and root knot nematodes. That was one thing. The other is selling a hybrid and having people fall in love with it kind of holds you hostage to coming back to the companies that sell that hybrid to buy it again. Because as we said at the beginning of our talk, you can't save seeds from a hybrid and then call it an heirloom. They don't reproduce. So probably a little bit of a financial advantage to seed companies to start to sell hybrids because then you're starting to create a more certain customer base. So to me, companies like Southern Exposure Seed Exchange and Victory that depend exclusively on heirlooms, I really love for people to support them because let's say you go to Victory and buy Cherokee Purple. You can save seeds and never have to go back and buy it from them again. So these companies that focus all on non-hybrids have to trust that if somebody likes three varieties they buy from them, yeah, they'll save seeds and share them, but they'll come back to that company and maybe try three or four more varieties. So it's a very different business plan, I think. So I think it started out maybe in good faith as a way to, to create hybrids that will lead to a better garden performance. But I think then the profit motive of it showed up a little bit. That then started really impacting the work that was being done for non-hybrid varieties. It dropped off nearly to nothing and all efforts went into creating hybrids. And all of this has happened really just since the 1950s. So we've seen a lot of change just in the last 70 years of gardening in terms of hybrids and heirlooms, and maybe today's point of detente, there are great hybrids, there are great heirlooms, there are great open pollinateds, and gardeners can find whatever they need to make the garden whatever they wish it to be. Mm -hmm. I think that there is more interest emerging in terms of seed sovereignty and people wanting to be able to do more themselves and, and learn how to feed themselves as well as develop their own Yes. Varieties. So I've been involved with quite a few groups in the last few years talking not only about seed sovereignty, but, you know, returning land to the proper owners, returning the names of the seed to the proper names. And I think this is all good. And I think it does make some people uncomfortable. I think one example, you know, we've created 145 dwarf varieties now. And one of them we developed 10 years ago was named by the developer as Dwarf Golden Gypsy. And two or three years ago, when I started getting involved in some of the groups that some of the names of seeds that have been out there forever are really quite harmful to some people culturally. So that variety is now Dwarf Golden Tipsy, (laughs) T-I-P-S-Y. It rhymes with gypsy. However, it works because Tipsy is the name of the family that we created that we bred that tomato from. I've been involved in quite a few discussions lately about taking a look at gardening 
I collect a lot of seed catalogs and some of those catalogs from the mid 1800s to the early 1900s are extremely hurtful to the point where there are just many, many images that I would never show at my talks. I have this saying I like to say is that gardeners may save the world. They're certainly gonna change the world. And I think through gardening, we can heal wounds, we can make things better for more people. And I think all of us who garden, this is just a little something we can keep in mind to make it a more meaningful experience for us and for others. Mm-hmm. To get back to the genetics just a little bit, yeah. what is flavor? What is playing in when it comes to flavor? Flavor is so complex because there are the flavor characteristics that the genetics of the tomato variety working with the conditions create. And it's kind of like wine or dark chocolate or coffee where you end up with all of these words that can describe different nuances. So a tomato can be fruity, it can be musty, it can be tart or effervescent, it can be peachy or sweet. And there probably are some absolutes. If you do inject tomato juice into a gas chromatograph, you would probably see a bunch of peaks that would equate to different chemicals that actually have different smell characteristics. But then you have the variable of people's own particular palates that are going to interact with those compounds. And somebody's peachy may be another one's lemony. Somebody's tart may be another one's sour. But flavor is really the result of the photosynthesis that the plant gets. So the leaves are taking in all of this energy and it's chemistry that's being done in the plant. And then the tomato hopefully will reach its maximum potential and take on all of these flavor characteristics that they're coded for. So two more interesting points about color, I think. Some varieties do seem to vary depending on where they're grown or by season. And then there are also some varieties in my collection that whether I've grown them in three different gardens in Pennsylvania or two different gardens in Raleigh or here in Hendersonville, North Carolina, they're always wonderful. So I don't know what that is. Is it just that some varieties have such strong flavor genetics that it can swamp out any ill effects that the plant may suffer from less than adequate conditions? So it's fascinating mm. to me. And mm. I've had kind of a discussion with someone I met on another message board. He claims that the only difference in tomato flavor is when you pick it. And I've said, oh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've grown enough tomatoes in enough locations to know that there is something to particular varieties that that just don't taste very good or so good you dream about them during the winter because you can't <laughs> wait to taste them again. Last year when I was working with Joe Lample on the course that we put together, I went to his house and between the two of us we had 15 of our favorite varieties at almost the peak of perfect ripeness. And we did a blindfolded tasting. And it was fascinating. And because I had this worry that maybe our perception of flavor is influenced by our love for the variety, having received it from certain people, or when we grew it, what we were doing in life at the time. You know, you and I before this talked a little about classical music. So I collected Mahler symphonies for a while. Invariably, the first time I heard each symphony became one of the favorite versions of that symphony, even if I heard it conducted by 24 other conductors. So mm -hmm. is that type of a, a similarity preference playing in? So we did this blindfolded taste testing, and two of the tomatoes that I rated a nine were Cherokee Purple and Cherokee Chocolate, which when I'm not blindfolded, I rate a nine out of 10. So I took comfort in that, that my palate actually can relate to a tomato on just its inherent basis, not that I like the way it looks or I know what the variety name is. Mm -hmm. If anybody who's listening to this or even you, Carmen, has not tried a blind tomato tasting sometime, it is so, I was going to say it's eye-opening, but that's a terrible pun. It's <laughs> eye-closing. But it's wonderful because you never focus so much on what flavor means to your palate is when you're blindfolded and you don't know 
what you're eating. You don't know what's in your mouth at that point. You end up concentrating so hard and you're trying to form words about what you're experiencing. So hmm. that that's a little bit about flavor from two different points of view. And my last word on flavor is color and flavor in tomatoes don't correlate. In my run through my galaxy of four to 5,000 different varieties, I could find anyone listening on this call, bland or delicious, tart or sweet examples of tomatoes in every single color in potato leaf or regular leaf. It, it's like people may have blue eyes or brown eyes. It's all in the genes. Doesn't mean better or worse. Same with tomatoes. They may be an assortment of different colors and shapes and sizes, but the flavor is going to be uniquely their own, determined by the genetics of that particular variety. Oh, interesting. That was actually going to be my next question. Like, I was wondering if the green or the black would help photosynthesize more sugars or just if there's any correlation, but I guess none, not. <laughs> none. Here, well, anecdotally, green flesh tomatoes, I have grown very few green flesh tomatoes that I don't love. And it may be because I just haven't grown enough because it's very, that's a very recessive trait, green flesh tomatoes when they're ripe. Green Giant is one of the best five tomatoes I've ever grown. Dwarf Emerald Giant, one of its children out of our Dwarf Tomato Breeding Project, is one of the best tomatoes I've ever had. And Captain Lucky, which I grew for the first time last year, which is a green tomato with purple swirls in it, was the best tomato at our blindfolded tomato tasting. It was the best tomato in my garden last year out of 60 varieties. So go figure. It's just, <laughs> you got to grow it to try it. Yeah. So what are some, well, you mentioned a few just there, but what are some standout varieties that you would recommend, heirlooms sure. that you'd recommend people try? Okay, I'm going to go by color because that's how my mind works on this. So scarlet red tomato, your typical, it's the big boy or grocery store color, but these are heirlooms. Nepal. Nepal is the tomato that converted me from hybrids to heirlooms in 1986. Johnny's Selected Steed still sells it. I got it from them back in 86. It doesn't look like anything special, but it's amazing. And two other reds I would mention would be Acres West Virginia and Andrew Rayhart's Jumbo Red. And those are the two typical big red beefsteak types that, you know, you, you'd find at a farm stand when you were a kid or off somewhere with your grandparents and stopping in a market. For pinks, Dester, Polish, Brandywine. And I know Brandywine is so controversial. There is a lot of bad Brandywine floating around out there, but I'm lucky to have the original strain that went from the Suddeth family to Ben Quisenberry to a seed saver named Roger Wentling. Then he sent it to me in 1987. And when it is having a good season, it's the best tomato I've ever eaten. For purple tomatoes, definitely Cherokee purple, Indian stripe, JD Special C-Tex, which is a little more obscure. For brown tomatoes, of which there are not that many that I've had, but definitely Cherokee Chocolate. Yellows, Lillian's Yellow Heirloom. Hughes, H-U-G-H apostrophe S. For bicolors, the yellow tomatoes have the red swirls. There's only two that I love, and they were the result of a bee visiting just the right plant in my garden. Lucky Cross and the Little Lucky. They're just, they taste like a brandy wine, but they've got that yellow with the red marbling in it. Green, definitely Green Giant or Cherokee Green. There are not that many great white flesh tomatoes. Maybe Great White is the best that I've had. And orange, I would say yellow Oxheart or a yellow brandy wine. And for striped tomatoes, I would say pink Berkeley tie-dye. So that's kind of a a run through just just some of my favorites, just by colors. And Sun Gold, of course, which is a hybrid cherry tomato that none of my gardens is really ever without. I think anybody listening to this would probably say, yeah, we've heard Craig talk about those a few times before. And, uh, you know, when I get to write Epic Tomatoes, one of my favorite part about that was being able to have these pages that I get to feature my favorites that I've experienced throughout the years with history behind them. So I think all of the ones I mentioned, the vast majority are probably in my book because I've loved them for so long. Mm -hmm. And is the cherry tomato size, is that a recessant or a dominant 
trait. Interestingly, cherry is quite dominant. So if you cross, well, here's an example. There's this teeny tiny tomato that is very, very popular of people who know me called Mexico midget. And the reason it's only popular to people who know me because it doesn't germinate like other tomatoes. So no seed company that I know of can sell the authentic strain because it doesn't meet germination standards. However, I got it from a fellow in California and it is incredible. It has the flavor of a one pound beefsteak, delicious tomato in this literally the size of a pea. We're talking a pea. So I cross that and I do think it is very, very closely related to the ancestral wild tomato and what it probably looked like on the, the coast of South America or in Central America. So I cross that with a dwarf that has one pound fruit. That's a pretty big tomato. The hybrid was the size of a typical cherry tomato. And I found this in a few other crosses I did where I would use a maybe a one ounce plum shaped tomato, crossing them with one pound beefsteaks. And almost invariably the F2s that I've been finding in F3s have all been on the small side. So the cherry size is quite dominant and a bit challenging to overcome. Huh. If you wanna if you wanna work the flavor of a cherry tomato into a larger tomato, it's gonna take a bit of work. Hmm. And what about in terms of the shapes? What are the more dominant? Yeah, so a few things that surprised me when I did a bunch of my crosses is that heart-shaped, which you'd think is recessive, is partially dominant. If you cross a typical round to flattened tomato with a strong heart-shaped tomato, the hybrid is gonna be slightly heart-shaped. If you cross a non-striped tomato with a striped tomato, the hybrid will be slightly striped. So stripes have partial dominance. If you cross a normal tomato with a tomato that has that anthocyanin black shoulder, mm -hmm. that anthocyanin is partially dominant. The only way I really found these out was by doing the crosses. Now, variegated foliage is a fun trait to play with, and that is recessive. So if you cross a normal foliage plant with one that has the white variegation on the green, the hybrid will be all green. But then when you grow out save seed, 25% of the seedlings will have variegation. And once you stabilize it, it carries through for the rest of your, of your work. So when you stabilize a recessive trait in the F2 generation, then you've got it. So with dwarfs, we cross indeterminate with dwarfs, we grow out the hybrid, then we save seeds. 75% are indeterminate, 25% are dwarf, but now you've got it. That dwarf characteristic will, will carry through for 100% of your plants going forward. So I'll tell you, once you get into this crossing tomatoes bug, it is endless, infinite, and <laughs> can make your garden space disappear and can drive your friends crazy because you start wanting to use their garden plots to run your experiments in. <laughs> oh, yeah, but could they complain if they're getting good tomatoes? <laughs> they don't complain. Most people have fun. So, you know, I'll typically give a talk and talk about the Dwarf Project. I'll get three to five additional volunteers. You know, you have a room of a million gardeners and one or two of them will be heirloom obsessed. Same thing about plant breeding. Put a million gardeners in a room, one or two of them will become obsessed about breeding. So it's always going to be the road less traveled, these niche projects. But to me, that's what makes them fun. There's so much to learn. So how can people find you and your project? Sure. My website is kind of a one-stop shop, craiglahulier.com, and on there I have a blog that I was very active in the blog last year, and I've taken a little break and I'll be getting it going again. I have some videos of how I start seeds, the story of the Dwarf Tomato Project. The other place to find me is an Instagram, at nctomatoman, and typically the last three years from about March to August or September, I spend 45 minutes each Thursday or Friday usually three in the afternoon, taking people on a tour of what's growing and answering lots of questions. So those really are the two ways. You know, Epic Tomatoes and Growing Vegetables and Straw Bales are in most libraries, or if people do want signed copies, they can just contact me at nctomatoman at gmail.com and we can work that out. So I'm not too hard to find, although 
being out in the rural area and being retired and having done my two years intensely with Joe Lample building the tomato course, this is a year where I'm going to take things a little bit easier. <laughs> so <laughs> well do more hiking, in other words. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And I'll put all the, all the links in the show notes. Sure. Great. This was a lot of fun, Carmen. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. As mentioned, the links are in the show notes. I highly recommend checking out Craig's site. I grew out a few of his dwarf varieties last season, and they outperformed most of my favorite cultivars. He's doing amazing work. This was the first episode for the new tune, Solanaceae. If you'd like to hear the entire song, it's on my website, carmenporter.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with a fellow plant lover. Let's grow this community. As always, I love hearing from you. Happy garden planning.